You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This is a rough draft speech by Marshall Fritz on the separation of school and state, why it's necessary, how it's possible. This version was given on November the 20th, 1994 in Sacramento, California at a supper club uh, hosted by Barbara Engelhart. About 30 people were present, most of them libertarians. The speech is uh, overly long. I have uh, turned up the speed a little bit, so you're going to be hearing it a little bit faster speed than regular. And, um, and I need help in figuring out where are the good parts that I should be keeping and where are the parts that I should be cutting. And where do I get discursive? And it's not appropriate. And uh, so any comments uh, are welcome. This is a comment draft of this speech. Uh, thank you. The schools used to sort of work. Uh, let's go conjure up a, a, a vision of uh, Brooklyn, 1935. And the attitude of the parents and the teachers in terms of what they were doing with the kids. And I used to tell the story about Catholic kids would report that if sister gave you a whack at school, when you got home, if your parents heard about it, you got two whacks. <laughs> and I thought that was a Catholic phenomenon. And by the way, it's not a speech on spanking, pro or con. But there was a uh, relationship between the parents and the nuns that seemed to uh, surround the kid and, um, uh, and, and, and he was uh, getting the same message both places. And then some of my gray-haired friends who uh, went through public school uh, told me, hey, same thing happened down there at Emerson Junior High. <laughs> I got a whack you know, from Mr. Henry. I got two of them when I got home. Same thing. Now, what am I talking about? It's not spanking. It's an attitude in the parents that those teachers are trying to help me raise up this kid. And it's an attitude in the teachers, in a large measure, we're trying to help those parents raise up these kids. There's an expression that's very popular in, uh, in education circles. It takes an entire village to raise a child. It's just a, they just sort of ooze when they say that. That's an African aphorism popularized by Robert Mueller of the United Nations. And many people believe it means we should tax everybody and the village should raise the child. It's sort of one version of that. But I don't think that's the real meaning there. I think what it means is, is that when a kid is told A is good, B is bad by his parents, throwing rocks is bad, behave yourself, don't hit your sister, that if the kid is walking through the village, whether it's in Africa, South America, Western Nebraska, or Brooklyn, if he's walking through the neighborhood on the way to school and he starts throwing rocks, boy, one of those neighbors is going to, hey, you know, Andy, stop that. Quite possibly going to tell his mom. He gets to school, the teacher, be it the village in India, or China, or Africa, well, not in China necessarily right now, but the... Uh, but the teacher is try, holds the same values that the parent does. 
and is trying to support that parental values. And our schooling system semi-worked for well over 100 years that the government had control of it from the 1840s to the 1940s because that village was still intact. But something has happened in the last roughly 50 years. It's been going on long before that, but it's become particularly prevalent in the last 30 years that has fractured the village. The parents no longer have the same attitude toward the school. If the school gets upset with the child, what's wrong with that teacher? There is not the support of the teacher that there used to be. What happened? Sunspots? You know what caused the parents all of a sudden to stop believing teachers are helping them? Now what I hope to show today in this presentation is that the teachers earned that disrespect. They, not maliciously perhaps, but that they lost that respect and trust of the parents for the actions that they took as they more and more adopted an attitude of rescuing the child from the parent. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Lord Acton, when he wrote that, did not say, comma, except school teachers, comma, except Christians, comma, except Republicans. For those that are listening to this on tape, we've just completed an election in America, and the Republicans uh, sort of swept things in 1994. In fact, Lord Acton didn't even say comma except libertarians. And our schooling system has been enjoying immense amounts of power, political power, since the 1840s. And that power has increasingly corrupted and corroded the souls of educators to the point where they don't even know how much they depend upon the 9mm gun pointing at the parent or the student. And that ability to use compulsion has led to an arrogance of attitude in the school teacher in the schooling system that has what has distanced them from the parents. Well, tell me, Mrs. Roofer, do you have a, uh, an advanced degree in early childhood education? Hmm? You don't? Well, then who are you to tell me? A graduate of Columbia's teacher college. Right? Yeah. Dutch over here is... You nodding your head or nodding off? I can't tell. <laughs> nodding at both. <laughs> I'll come over and touch Dutch every once in a while, and it's uh, helping. Uh, no decaf, no decaf. Well, let's get into it. But this speech has a sentence, a theme, that I hope that you retain. What'd you, what'd you hear, Gordy? Well, the guy said that democratic socialism has failed in operating our schools. What do you mean by that? Well, we all know what socialism is. You can look it up in the dictionary. And it's the government administration and uh, operation, ownership of the means of production. 
And democratic socialism, that's simple. We all vote for the school board, and then we run it on a socialist basis. And the point I'm trying to make today is that democratic socialism is the wrong vehicle, the wrong organizational vehicle for schooling. And that a society that discovers this and gets rid of it, because it's used throughout the entire planet as the prevalent vehicle for schooling today, the society that gets rid of democratic socialism as a vehicle for schooling is going to make cultural breakthroughs uh, that are just, it'll just be unbelievable. It's hard for us to imagine. I believe it'll be more revolutionary than the telephone, more revolutionary than the computer. It'll have an effect on society that is incredibly beneficial. We need a return to family responsibility for schooling. That doesn't necessarily mean homeschooling, although I admire homeschooling immensely. I admire people who have a home garden. I like the extra tomatoes. <laughs> but as you bring children into the world, Bob has seven, I think that he had an attitude that he's responsible for feeding those children. It didn't mean he was responsible for growing all the food, harvesting every onion that the kids ever ate. In fact, he wasn't even responsible necessarily for cooking them. You can take the kids out for dinner, out to a restaurant, but you're responsible for it. And if somebody says, well, wait a minute now. The society is better off if children are well-fed. Therefore, society, since it benefits, should pay for all food. <clears throat> in fact, I believe in, a, in an immense Meals on Wheels program where all dinners are prepared by by. Real nutrition, Peggy, you don't have a degree in nutrition science, do you? Well, then how should she know how to feed her? You do? No. You don't? <laughs> well, then, who gave you permission to feed your children without a degree in nutrition science? So we, had, we could have these immense um, central commissaries where, sort of like dominoes on steroids, where uh, uh, meals are produced and sent out, meals on wheels, and, tw and, and, and seven dinners a week are delivered to every home in America. Yeah. Look sharp, feel sharp, clothes make the man. Why should only the rich kids get to wear the designer clothing with the tags on the front? Right? Poor kids should too. We all benefit if kids have good self-esteem. All work and no play makes James a dull boy. So society benefits from a lack of dullness, from brightness. Therefore, society should pay for every child in America to have two uh, all-day visits to a, a major theme park every year. Right? Pretty soon you're all scratching your head and you say, man, that is a degree of welfare mentality that is really bad. Right? Oh, one more thing. Society benefits when a child is ed educated. Therefore, society should pay. How many of us went to a government-run school at some time in our lives? May I see a show of hands? Yeah. Well, then I say that your parents were welfare users. Yeah. Right? And many of us have never been upset with those third-generation welfare recipients. I say maybe your parents were fourth-generation welfare recipients, and maybe you're fifth-generation. Because if you brought children into the world and expected other people to pay for their education, because it's good for them, I mean, society has benefited by mowing my lawn. Therefore, society should pay for mowing my lawn. 
There are. <laughs> something of an aside, but I believe that the anger that is felt by the middle class and the upper class and even the working poor class toward the welfare recipient, the anger that is felt by them to some degree, probably to some large degree, is because all of those other people have a welfare mentality themselves and are not in recognition of it. And I believe one of the main provocations of anger is when the other person has the same problem you do and you're in denial of it for yourself. The old saying, you know, you're pointing your finger at somebody, three of them are pointing back. Pogo said, uh, we met the enemy and hear us. Shakespeare says, me think the lady doth protest with too much. Scripture says, you know, hey, let's be working on the, uh, on the, the plank lumberyard in your own eye before you work on the... Uh, piece of dust in the other person's eye. It's all over. Kids know it. Tanks one to no one. There's another expression of that same thing. That old truism that's everywhere. You see that they aren't the problem. We are the problem. I gave this to a conservative audience in St. Louis. And I asked, would everyone here who believes that he is a third-generation welfare user or more, please stand up. A third of the audience stood up, and the other two-thirds glowered. <laughs> I'm not going to try it tonight. <laughs> but we're not going to see a healing of our culture until parents become responsible, again, for the education of their children. <clears throat> So, let the show begin. Oh, one other cute line I forgot here. I'm going to go stick it in. All other reforms for schooling will fail in the sterile seedbed of socialism. It is sterile and you can take whatever single or half dozen or two dozen reforms that you want. You can be back to basics and phonics. You can be outcome-based education. You can be cooperative learning. You can use peer tutoring. You can go through dozens of different reforms. They will all fail. Because of the Hawthorne effect, each of them may have a momentary moment in the sun where people think it's working. But the reforms of 10 years ago are all failures. The reforms of 15 years ago are gone. The reforms of 20 years ago are failures. The reforms of 25 and 30 years ago. And the education business, they prefer to call them obsolete. They're not obsolete. They were failures. And they will continue to fail because democratic socialism can't work. And that will be the first of six segments to this presentation tonight. To give you a little overview, we're going to have six segments to the presentation. The first one is the four reasons that Democrats... Oh, this is going to drive the note-takers nuts, right? Because I have these... But if you're going to take notes, we can pass around the, uh, the, uh, my uh, crib sheet here to help you out if you need to. But anyway, we'll be covering six basic topics. 
first one is the four reasons that democratic socialism fails. Then we're going to talk about history and how did we get to where we are. We'll take a snapshot of the 1840s, then a snapshot of the 1940s, excuse me, the 1830s, then the 1840s, then the 1940s, then the 1990s. So we're going to look at four points in American history. And then we're going to talk about the seven predictable improvements with separation. I think there'll be many more improvements than these seven that I'm going to mention. But I think there's seven that we can have a high degree of confidence are predictable. There's others that we just can't even imagine yet. Then we'll talk about the goals and activities of the new organization that was founded approximately 10 months ago today in a phone conversation between Chris Rufer and me. And Chris Rufer said, Marshall, I think we need, and in my uh, style, I've always wanted to show off how smart I am, finished the rest of his sentence for him and said, a new organization that specializes in the separation of school and state. And he said, well, that isn't what I had in mind, but that's not a bad idea either. <laughs> but it was approximately February the 1st this year, 1994, that that phone conversation took place. And it just felt absolutely, incredibly right. And over the next two or three days, I kept bouncing it off of different friends and, and confidence. And every one of them, I couldn't even finish the sentence before they said, Whew. <laughs> that's it, that's it. I mean, it was just uncanny how uh, it was the right thing. And for the last 10 months, it continues to seem to be that way. So what are the goals of this new organization called the Separation, Alliance, Separation of School and State Alliance? And what are our activities? Number five is going to be why there is hope for what I would like to label the People's Goals 2000. And the People's Goals 2000 will be to have all 85,000 government-run schools conveyed to private ownership by June the 30th, the year 2000, at the close of the 1999 year 2000 school year. So instead of this nonsense that Benito Bush and Benito um, Clinton uh, have uh, concocted for us in Washington, D.C., and I say Benito uh, deliberately because Benito Mussolini used to say, used to boast, at any hour of any day, I can tell you on which page of which school book each child in Italy is on. Yes. Achtung. All together now. Right? You are the same, <laughs> and we're going to make sure that you stay the same. So, and then number six, what you can do now. So let's get into it. The four reasons why democratic socialism fails. One, the denial of parental responsibility. Two, it can't support parents' values. Three, it hurts teachers. And four, it hurts kids. Democratic socialism demands the denial of parental responsibility. It is the nature of socialism to say that the child is the responsibility of all of society. You, Andy, are not responsible for paying for the children that you bring into the world for their education. It, they have an entitlement to, to schooling. Therefore, it is society's job to pay for that. Now, a school has got to ally itself with somebody. And a school, no school is an island. It must ally itself with somebody. And it will, like any other human being, ally itself with the person who makes this sound. And in democratic socialism, the person that makes that sound of a check coming out of a checkbook 
don't know what I'm going to do in a few years. The sound of an electronic transfer. <laughs> is a politician. So who do the educators serve? Their master, the politician. That is the nature of democratic socialism. The school cannot serve the parent. And when the parent is making that sound, when the parent has accepted the responsibility, then once again, the school can support the parent. <coughs> Two, schools can, democratic socialist schools cannot support parents' values. We mentioned earlier that, that this tendency of corruption of the soul, power tends to corrupt. I want to show you a couple of examples here. Here's the uh, front page of, uh, oh, where'd you go, front page? Front page of the St. Louis Dispatch. Now, I ask parents, what is the one single most requirement that you have of a school? How many of you would guess that parents say safety? Absolute number one, first thing, basic. How many of us would say safety? You're right. That is the parents' first, you know, Given everything else, you know, all let the kids safe. All right. St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Saturday, October the 1st, front page. Chicago schools rebuff wounded hero teacher. Saving pupils wasn't part of his job. Board rules. Clarence Notre barely had time to act when a gunman burst into the elementary school gym. As the bullets flew, the physical education teacher spread out of his arms to shield the children and push them out a door of safety. He got shot in the wrist. His school and community lauded Notre as a hero, but the Chicago Board of Education insisted he was not entitled to workers' compensation. <laughs> they said saving children's lives was not part of his job. He got a $13,000 award. I mean, this is big bucks, right? $13,000 award to pay for the, whatever they call it, the rehabilitation kind of a thing. And the school board is appealing that because it's not in his job duties. To save the kid. What do they want him to do? Run out first? <laughs> Many of you know uh, um, Joe Furig, professor of economics at Golden Gate University. I think he's been up and spoken here. And Joe, when I read this to him, said, you know, <laughs> the government-run schools are no longer shooting themselves in the foot. <laughs> they are aiming at the vital organs. <laughs> They can't support parents' values. They want to teach you what they want. And their attitude towards parents is remarkable. Now, let's say that, that a bunch of us were to take a, uh, a tour with some public school people into an independent school. Uh, is Mary Hill a, a school around here? Mary? Okay. Let's say we go to Mary Hill, and, um, and we have a tour, and we have, we're taking with us uh, a bunch of... Uh, uh, school teachers from the local public school. And they have a poster up here. And the poster says, Elizabeth uh, came to Mary Hill in the, uh, when she was uh, in, the, in the fourth grade. She could barely read her name after three years in uh, public schools. After just four months at Mary Hill, she's now reading on grade level. And they had this beautiful picture of the, the kid and everything. The reaction, I can tell you, of the public school teachers would be, that is public school bashing. It's the word they would use. That is bashing. They would be furious. I've never seen such a poster at Mary Hill or at St. Joachim's or at 
you know, Fred's Phonic Factory for that matter. The only poster I've seen that compares to that was hanging here in Sacramento at Hiram Johnson High School. And I show you now that poster. This is hanging right outside the principal's office, 14 feet from Jaime Escalante's in-basket. And I'll read the poster to you. The top line, minutes after she was born, her parents threw her out of a speeding car. Amazingly, she managed to land on her feet. I'm sure that was a metaphor. There's a picture here of just the most angelic five, six-year-old, seven-year-old black child. Just angelic looking. Then in the small print it says, when even the doctors gave up on Elizabeth, you gave her a fighting chance, a family, and a future. She may have been thrown from a speeding car, but you were there to catch her. Your state employees campaign, it's working. This is the recruiting poster for the union. Hardcore, subtle, hardcore parent bashing. Parents, at least black parents, throw their kids out of a speeding car. And the doctors give up on them. But the union, the union comes through. This poster hung on schools throughout the state of California. Any parent visiting Hiram Johnson High School, waiting to see the vice principal, got to see that gem hanging on the wall. Two more. I don't know which of these two is more absurd. Okay? You've all seen the dancing raisins, right? How many have seen the dancing condoms? Huh? Poster hanging all over a kindergarten through 12th grade school in Denver, Colorado. I asked for a copy of it. Could I have that, please? Yes. All right, now, for those that are out in Radio Land, it says, keep a rubber on hand. And then there's a hand there with five of the most charming, delightful dancing condoms you ever did see. Then, you know, I looked at the thing, was appalled, got a copy of it, got it, uh, you know, what do you call it, the laminated right away so I could pass it out at meetings like this. And then it was a couple, three weeks later, I noticed the feet. And which two of those condoms are wearing high heels and the other three are not? And then I looked at the faces. And then I started looking at the eyelashes and the eye, and I'm looking at who's looking at who. I passed this around. You can all uh, decode what's being said with the dancing <coughs> condoms. Now, this is not a pro-condom speech, nor is it an anti-condom speech. <laughs> it looks like it's not a pro-spanking or an anti-spanking speech. But the teachers have an agenda that they are trying to impart into those children at that school. As I say, I don't know which is more absurd, the dancing condoms or this little gem. New York Times March 14, 1994. Education Secretary Richard W. Riley today announced a program of voluntary national standards for art education intended to reverse the steady decline of teaching of the arts. In music, for example, a grade school student will be expected to sing on pitch and in rhythm. Now, what are we saying here? Only God can make a tree, but Sacramento Unified can make a baritone? 
<laughs> I mean, we have goals, something or other, that America cannot be a happy nation if anybody else is getting a higher score on their test scores. We've got to keep up with the Koreans in simultaneous equations. Pretty soon we'll have to keep up with the Italians in opera and the Belgians and who knows what, lace? America falling behind on the lace business? was they can't support your values because power tends to corrupt and when they have that kind of power to compel you to pay and compel you to send your child they become corrupted and as they usurp your responsibility you abdicate it it is not the teachers fault it is every bit as much the parents fault for abdicating the responsibility. One, denial of parents' responsibility. Two, they cannot support your values. Three, democratic socialism hurts teachers. One of the little edgy secrets is how many good teachers leave in the first five years. Democratic socialism is so oppressive as a way of managing things that quality people got to get out. Those that don't get out got to lie. They have to deceive in order to stay in the system. <coughs> the only people that can really succeed in the system are the people that shouldn't be in education at all anyway. Those are the ones that prosper. Well, why are you still teaching, Mildred? I only have nine years left <laughs> to my retirement. If there ever is an occupation where you want people to have passion and love for their subject and not for their retirement, it's education. You teach what you are. If you are a hypocrite, you teach it. Number four, oh, I almost forgot here. <laughs> somebody pointed out to me once, can't remember now who it was, but I want to give somebody credit. Teachers are always crying for professionalism. Professionals hire assistants, not superintendents. When the schools, all 85,000 are conveyed to private operators, that will be the case. The teachers will hire assistants. They will not hire superintendents. And they will become professionals. And this thing that you're hearing now about prayer in schools is absurd. Absurd. I say to my Christian friends that like it, I say, oh, okay, only Christians then will be able to lead the prayers, right? And it'll be to a Christian God. Well, I don't know how we're going to do that. Okay, so we'll have non-Christians saying Christian prayers, right? Because uh, we can't give the teachers a, a, you know, sign up for the Christian prayers and don't sign up for the Christian prayers. You can't do that, can you? Well, I guess not. All right, so we'll have non-Christians. We'll have atheists saying Christian prayers, leading the children in Christian prayers, right? Well, yeah. Uh, now, what are they going to do? Are they going to make a mockery of it? Or are they going to be absolutely pretend they're sincere and not make a mockery of it? And be hypocrites? <laughs> and which one's good for your child? To see his favorite teacher making a mockery 
or to see his favorite teacher who's an atheist pretending to like it and being a hypocrite. I mean, look, folks, it is time for mental floss. <laughs> yeah, give me my condom. <laughs> I don't want to lose that one. Oh, yeah. All right, I want a second look over here. All right. <laughs> well, look at him getting at the spectacles. I won't use your name on tape, Dick. <laughs> and it hurts kids. John Taylor Gatto tells this beautiful story in his book, Dumbing Us Down, The Tyranny of the Bells. And if things were really important, you wouldn't ring the bell every 43 minutes and tell the kid, you know, leave Shakespeare, go to basket weaving, leave basket weaving, your art, whatever it happens to be, go to simultaneous equations. You know, beep, 10, 15, simultaneous equations on the A deck. You know, it's just this response to the factory whistle on something as sacred as education is absurd. The thing just brutalizes, I believe, kids. And one example I wish to give that I think is happening all over the country to literally millions of kids every year is an institutionalized double bind. Now, we may not be familiar with the technical term double bind as it's used in, in psychology, but more and more psychologists are thinking that it is actually one of the root causes of crazy making. We know it by its expression, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I saw it in my family just a few weeks ago. The two grandchildren found great-grandma's camera, and they played with it and messed it up a little bit. So there they are, standing there on the carpet. They're four and a half years old, and, you know, and everything. We're sorry, Grandma. And Grandma says, if you think being sorry is good enough and is going to fix that camera, you've got another guest coming. <laughs> friend of mine, Mark Popper, says, when a child is told A equals not A, the mind skips into la-la land. And the traditional way of double-binding a kid is for a single parent, I mean, not a single parent, a parent to do it to a child. And if you're working with the pre-abstract mind, say below the age 12, roughly, but the not fully abstracted mind, they got no way to resolve this stuff. Although I'm not supposed to say thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm not supposed to say I'm sorry. It also works with thank you. You know, she does something wonderful for you, and you say thank you. If you think saying thank you is enough. Right? I mean, it can, and sometimes it's not even done with words. Lots of times it's just done with a raised eyebrow, a little inflection, a turn of the shoulder. Right? thousand and one ways to double-bind a person. Remember thalidomide? Remember the pictures of the kids with thalidomide? No feet, no hands. Boy, it was pretty obvious there's something wrong here when kids are coming out with no feet and no arms and that sort of a thing. And they trace it back, and oops, it's thalidomide. If we could take pictures of the soul, or the spirit, or the character, or something inside a human being that's been double-binded, I believe what we would see is a spirit without the hands and the legs and the feet. We would see that, that deformed spirit inside the child. And double-binding is one of the ways a spiritual thalidomide now, what do you have when you've got a school that is teaching things different than what the parent is teaching? The parent is saying, and there's 101 ways to do this. 
I'm not sure this speech isn't about creationism or evolution. But if mom and dad are saying, God made you, Bobby, and the teacher is saying, um, no, that's not what we teach here. And you love your teacher, and she's really important. How does the eight-year-old, nine-year-old know this? The mind goes into la-la land. There's no other way to resolve it. And two of the most important people in your life are disagreeing on something so fundamental as where you came from. And it's not just creation versus evolution or chastity versus latex or, you know, 101 other places where the battles are fought. Phonics versus uh, a whole language or whatever. is. Um, thousand and one places where these battles are fought. And what we've been doing with the increasing impositional attitude of the schools, the schoolmasters, what we've been doing with their imposition attitude of they are trying to impose their values on the child, different than the parents' values, is we are, particularly in the youngsters, deforming that core, that spirit, or preventing it from ever developing. And I wonder how much of the drug use for recreation, the sexual promiscuity by young children for recreation, how much of the rage that it gets expressed in violence and graffiti and theft, how much of that is to try to dull the pain of deformed or unformed personalities? Are these kids self-medicating? As many of you know, drugs were legal for 10-year-olds to buy in 1910. A 10-year-old with a couple of dollars could go into a pharmacy and buy heroin or cocaine. And they didn't. It was legal, but they didn't. Now it's illegal. And they do. And part, and I don't know if it's 27% or 42% or 93.5%, I really don't have any idea. But I think a significant part of this is the, in effect, a custody battle between the divorcing parents but a custody battle between the parent and the school over whose is the child, and that has been unresolved in America. And for 150 years, we have not addressed that problem, and that is what, if you want to get to the nub of it, the separation of school and state is all about. And it will cause a national debate on whose are the children, who is the primary responsible person for the children. And someday, some people are going to come down on the side of society. There's a professor of psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who has just published a book on why parents should be licensed. We license pilots. We license drivers. And in order to be a parent, you need to get a parent license, he believes. You cannot make fun of these people. Anything that you make up that you think is absurd, they're doing or planning to do. How many of you know what outer course is? Show of hands. Outer course. <laughs> it is in the literature now to teach the children mutual masturbation. See, inner course is done inside. Outer course is done outside. 
Uh, folks, you got a poster on that. I am not making this up. Has <laughs> intercourse actually become a sexual term now? Uh, yes, uh, this century in America, it's no longer just a, a small uh, uh, city in uh, in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and in fact, it's even mispronounced. It's inner, I-N-N-E-R, of course. I used to have intercourse with just about everybody I knew when I was growing up. I believe that. <laughs> and they were I believe that. Has the meaning of the word changed that fast? Completely. Yeah. Gosh, I Yeah, aren't you gay about, aren't you, uh, aren't you where's your gayness, man? <laughs> and by the way, uh, we appreciate Rip Van Winkle coming here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Part of his waking up ceremony to come and hear this presentation. Hey, hey Joe. <laughs> I was talking with uh, Professor Kevin Ryan at um, Boston University. And he says he doesn't think outer course is going to solve the problem. Because the kids. Pardon? Still cracking up for that. Difficulty with that. I need a poster. <laughs> We won't go on to what Professor Ryan thinks will be the next step, but he makes a prediction as to what they're going to do over the uh, horizon after Outer Course is fully established. Um, fully, well, wait a minute, folks. You think this is bizarre? What if 25 years ago I was talking here and I said, you know what's going to happen in the next few years? State of California is going to have a law in the books that uh, they can take your child, age uh, 13, 14, 15, 12, 11, the youngest that I know of so far is 10. They can take your child out for an abortion and pay for it and keep it a secret from you. And in fact, there is a state law on the books in California that there are times when the school cannot tell you the truth as to where your child is. If you call and you say, where is Millie? I need her right now. Millie is off campus at a birth control or abortion session. They are not allowed to tell you the truth as to where your 12-year-old is. The law does not specifically say you must lie. It does not say you must deceive. It only says you cannot reveal. Now, if I told you that 25 years ago, you'd say I was crazy. Well, that's the law in the books right now. We're in the capital of California. Yeah, you cannot make fun of them. Because whatever absurdity you come up with, they're either doing it or planning it. And figuring out how to convince you it's in your child's best interest. Well, she won't get pregnant. Right? Without her course, and she won't get a disease. Huh? If those are the two criteria that we have for human sexuality. That's what the schools are doing now, time to stop it. <laughs> Ann Landers endorsed it in her column January this year for junior high and high school kids. All right, we're just uh, wrapping up. A main section here. Democratic socialism can't work. To recap, total denial of parental responsibility. It says society is responsible for educating the child. 
cannot support the parents' values, the power tends to corrupt and they must impart their values. It hurts the teachers, the good teachers leave or deceive, and it hurts the kids in 101 ways. Now, a quick history of American education. How many of us are familiar with the known fact, the proven fact, whatever, that schools in America were not run by the government for 200 years? Show of hands, how many? About two-thirds of this audience. That is the highest I've ever seen. Barbara, keep inviting these people. <laughs> They're learning something here. But America had a 200-year tradition of the government not running the schools. Uh, many were homeschooled. Uh, some went to charity schools. Many went to community schools. There wasn't a distinction between profit and non-profit because it wasn't an income tax. You didn't need that. There was a, uh, we didn't, they didn't call it tuition. They called it rate bills. Were sent home to the parents at the end of the year. The parents that weren't, couldn't afford it didn't get a rate bill. The ones that could, did. In the 1830s, this is the end of side one. Side two is already queued up. So couldn't afford it, didn't get a rate bill. The ones that could, did. In the 1830s, there is no evidence of, in the non-slavery states, of any kids being denied schooling because of lack of funds. In a society where 90% or more of the people would qualify as poor by today's standards, as that society was rich enough to educate every child who wanted an education. How many wanted an education? So many wanted an education that the literacy rate in the 1830s in the non-slave states is higher than it is today. They could read, write, and cipher. In 1832, de Tocqueville came over here from France. He went out to the far west. This is 1832 or 31. And he goes down the Mississippi. This is out there on the edge. He went back to France and he said, America's public education system is fantastic. Every farmer can argue philosophy. Is this a public restaurant that we're in tonight? Yeah? Is it run by the Sacramento Restaurant District? Nope. See, public restaurants can be privately owned and operated, right? In 1832, public schools were privately owned and operated. So he wasn't saying anything about a school district because there weren't any yet. So a picture now, America for 200 years has had essentially what we would call private education. And the people were well enough educated that out of a population of 3 million, 300,000 copies of Common Sense were published in the 1770s. That'd be the equivalent of 26 million today being published or more. And if you read that thing, you say, man, the average dummy can't read this thing. This is hard work. They read that in those days. So then what happens? in the 1840s, or the late 1830s. Anybody uh, know a significant world event? Significant world event in the 1830s. The potato famine. And some Irish decided it was better to go to America than to sit here and starve. So the Irish started coming. They landed in Boston and New York. And guess where the public school movement started? Boston and New York. 
And what was one of the main motivating threats of having the government take over the schools? Stick it to the Irish. The average American's attitude towards an Irishman was about like Archie Bunker towards a Haitian, except not that nice. Irish need not apply. No Irish or dogs. Exceptions made sometimes for dogs. They were papists, Catholics, and we can stick it to them. And a Protestant, particularly non-liturgical churches, Baptist, Methodist, kind of a low church sort of a thing, said, well, let's have the government take over the schools, and then we can rescue these kids from their priests and parents. The government schools were set up from the very beginning, considering the parent the enemy. Quote from Philip Schlechte, the big guru in restructuring in Kentucky. So one of the reasons we have government-run schools today was anti-pluralism, anti-diversity, anti-tolerance attitude of the know-nothing, Ku Klux Klanish kind of an attitude. A second reason was to prepare the children for the factories and to get those kids to respond to that factory whistle. Take those boys and girls off of the farm and put them into a factory environment. And that's why the, the Prussian model became so popular. Prior to the 1840s, schools in America were typically one-room schoolhouses, even in the big cities. The plans still exist for Boston and Hartford, and they show Boston built schoolrooms of 250 kids and Hartford for 300 kids. And a school had three masters, the headmaster and two subordinate or assistant masters. And the 250 or 300 kids in one room, frequently using the Lancastrian approach of the master teaching 10 kids and then each of those 10 kids teaching 10 more. And kids moved through the curriculum at their own speed and pace. And some raced ahead on some subjects and some lagged behind on other subjects. It's kind of like Boy Scouts. So some guys are getting 14 merit badges and the other guy's working on his fourth. Boy Scouts, you don't treat everybody as the same. You are 11 years old. You now should have 11.6 merit badges. You are falling behind, Jimmy. Right? Daddy is mad at you. You're not staying up with the Joneses kids and Boy Scouts. Boy, you treat kids like that, you mess up Boy Scouts, right? But the Prussians had a problem. They were defeated by Napoleon in 1807-09. They didn't like it. You know? <laughs> Napoleon, remember he went to Russia? What did he go through on the way? Prussia. Boom! <laughs> and off he went. So the Prussians decided they can invent another, a better schooling system than they used to have. And in 1819, they started their new schooling system. Reading here from John Taylor Gatto's uh, piece, Our Prussian School System. Modern forced schooling started with, in Prussia in 1819 with a clear vision of what centralized schools could deliver. One, obedient soldiers for the army. Two, obedient workers for the mines. Three, subservient civil servants for government. Four, subservient clerks for industry. And five, citizens who thought alike about major issues. <laughs> Politically correct. <laughs> In the Prussian, pr PC, Prussian correctus. Javon. And that Prussian system was first operated in Quincy, Massachusetts in the 1846 school year. That's how recent it is. They shoot horses. They grade cattle. We're supposed to love children. 
and we shouldn't be lining them up and with a big purple stamp <laughs> pounding C's into their butt and D's and F's because they're not making the grade. It's crazy. But, ah, <laughs> the last little gem here in the 1840s. Scientific phrenology. Now, phrenology is obscure enough that most of us who have any remembrance of it remember it from reading jokes or something about it as a parlor game in the 1920s where you feel the bumps on the head and you tell the future, right? Remember that? That's phrenology. That's toy phrenology. Real phrenology, scientific phrenology, was all the rage of the 1830s. It was as believed as many of our scientific theories today are believed. And if we could just get the schools to, to be using some... I mean, Horace Mann, <laughs> the, the father of American public schools, was a scientific phrenologist. <laughs> yes, and he believed in these 31 or so segments of the mind, and here's where you learn to arithmetic, and, and if they could figure out ways to stimulate the brain. Yeah, it's all hokum. <laughs> but that's what your public school system is based on. They still name schools after Horace Mann. I mean, they don't use the scientific phrenology anymore. Why, they don't even talk about that a whole great deal in the official history books. Yeah. You knew there was something wrong all those years, didn't you? <laughs> there was. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> Jesus, I knew it. I smelled a rat. <laughs> I smelled a rat. <laughs> but it kind of worked. Why did it kind of work? Well, we could lay the, 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 the blame to the Philadelphia Bible riots of August 19, excuse me, 1844. We just sort of celebrated, although I don't, didn't hear any, about any celebration, the 150th anniversary, three or four months ago, in August this year. And the 150th anniversary of the Philadelphia Bible Riots. How many of us are familiar with the Philadelphia Bible Riots from reading your history books? Well, we missed that one. Okay. <laughs> Public school has been chugging along for a few years, and the local bishop noticed that they were, the kids were all reading, Catholic bishop, noticed that the uh, kids were all reading the Saint, not Saint Frick James, <laughs> the King James <laughs> version of the Bible. And he got together a letter and a petition from the Catholics to the Philadelphia school board. Could the Catholic kids please read the Douay version of the Bible, which was their English translation? And the Protestant dominated Protestant, Protestant school board said, in fact, they didn't say no, they said, hell no. And the local Protestants went out and burned down a Catholic church to sort of emphasize the point. The Catholics, not having fully discovered pacifism yet, <laughs> retaliated. And the total death toll was 12 from both sides. Yes, a little Northern Ireland right here in the city of brotherly love. And the Catholics decided, heck with this noise. We better set up our own schools. And what you had in America for 100 years was two parallel parochial school systems, a tax-supported Protestant school system, and a non-tax-supported Catholic school system, but two parallel school systems. And in fact, I, I love to, to point out that in when 1963, or 62 and 63, two Supreme Court rulings, when they took Protestant prayer out of the schools, somebody else says, what do you mean Protestant prayer? I said, well, did they take the Hail Marys out of the schools? Huh? Well, look, can I take a $100 bill out of this glass? Well, no, there's not a $100 bill in that glass. You can't take a $100 bill out of that glass. It's not in there. 
Did they take Hail Marys out of the public schools? They couldn't take Hail Marys out of the schools because they weren't in there. <clears throat> Did they take the Hail Marys out of the Catholic schools with that Supreme Court ruling? Well, uh, I don't know. I haven't been in a Catholic school uh, recently, but uh, I don't think they took them out. I think they probably still have them, don't they? Yeah, why would they take them out? Sure. Pardon? Back when I went there. Back when I went there, still got them. So we should always say, when they took Protestant prayer out of the schools in 1963 to drive home the P word of who ran the schools from the 1840s to the 1940s, it was the Protestants and they ran it for their pleasure. And if you're a Jehovah Witness, tough. You're an atheist, a Catholic, or a Jew, tough. The Christian Reform bailed out. The Seventh-day Adventists bailed out. In many cities, the Missouri Synod, Lutherans bailed out. The Wisconsin Synod, Lutherans bailed out. The Catholics weren't the only one that didn't like this. But the village stayed intact. See, it still semi-worked. Because each person was, each kid was going to a school where the teachers sort of agreed with his parents and they were supporting each other. So we had a pluralistic school system. And you had multiple villages in the same Brooklyn. You know, the village isn't, I'm not talking about a, a little remote They win all along. The modernists have a different attitude than the traditionalists. And I picked these words, these names, used, borrowed them from others, because they seem to me to be the least offensive that I can find. I'm not trying to get into the pro-choice, pro-life kind of argument where the names create most of the... Excuse me, not most, but uh, uh, where people are fussing about the names so much of the time. And the modernists have won the day. And the modernists have a different attitude. It's not particularly religious, although religion certainly can be a part of it. But there can be traditionalist atheists and modernist atheists. There can be traditionalist Christians and modernist Christians. Traditionalist Catholics and modernist Catholics. Okay, so the, the, this thing is not a clean devising, division on, the, uh, on, on, on denominational lines. That's fractured our village. Now, instead of a few Jews, a few uh, um, um, Jehovah Witnesses, a few atheists taking their lumps, but, but bringing their kids back home and raising them with a very strong family, and they would just say, don't believe your teacher when she tells you that. <laughs> okay? Don't say that Lord's Prayer very loud. That's not ours. Now what you have is perhaps the majority of people sending their kids to school that are run by a minority attitude. So it's not just a few minorities that are getting stomped on. It is the majority that is getting stomped on by a minority. And these Two views, the traditionalist and modernist, are butting up against each other like tectonic plates, scraping against each other. The school wars that you see in battles are a reflection of that. There are at least two that I know of school districts in America that now have to call out the police to maintain order. 400 people showing up. One person the other day on the phone says, yeah, I think it would be marvelous if 400 people had ever showed up at our school board meeting. All we ever get is 10 or 12. I said, yeah, you sure? You want a mob of 400 angry people showing up 
You know, is that your idea of a school board meeting? Well, I guess not. The people are upset about this kind of nonsense. And they don't know what to do about it. So, here we are in the 1990s. The modernists are victorious. Protestant prayers out of the schools. And they're doing some good things. In some respects. Careful now as you're listening to this tape. You're trying to figure out some way to not like me. But I'm going to say, in some respects, I am a modernist. Because I am against the Prussian way of teaching the kids. So I believe many of the modernist attacks against the traditionalist teaching methods are correct. <coughs> the way the modernists are implementing them is sometimes horrendous and does far more harm than even the Prussians could do. You know, if you bump into the middle of a gang fight, do you have to choose sides? Or can you just put the car into reverse and get out of here? You don't have to join the Crips or the Bloods. <laughs> it's possible if you don't like Hitler, that doesn't mean that you're going to fall in love with Stalin. <coughs> Maybe both of them have some problems. And indeed, I believe that's the case between the modernists and the traditionalists today. And if the traditionalists win, you think we're going to see 200 years? We've had 200 years of religious peace in America, relatively speaking to other countries that are pluralistic, because of the separation of church and state. Do you think if the Protestants win their schools back, we're going to see 200 years of school peace? <laughs> no, we're not. There's only one peaceful solution to this battle, the full separation of school and state. Okay. Third item. Out of six, pick up the pace. Okay. Seven predictable improvements with separation. Size, variety, convenience, cost, scholarships, aesthetics, and safety. Size. The schools will shrink in size. You won't see elementary schools in Los Angeles with 2,300 kids in one prison-like structure. Can you imagine going to an elementary school? I mean, think about your own first day of high school feeling and how oh, big the place is. And you were 13 or 14 years old. And now think about a six-year-old going to a school with 2,300 people. It is so absurdly out of scale. You could ask every teacher, food worker, janitor in that school, is, what do you think the right size for an elementary school is? Do you know how many would say 2,300? Zero. There's not a teacher on this earth dumb enough to think that 2,300 is the right size for an elementary school. <laughs> the first thing that teachers would do with the separation of school and state is subdivide that school probably into 20 or 30 schools. They might use the same big facility, but it would look more like a shopping center. So what you'd have is you'd go from 85,000 government schools to 400,000 or 500,000 schools in those same facilities. I ran this whole thing by Carlos Medina, the former superintendent of District 4 in East Harlem because they did this somewhat within the government school system. And they broke the notion of a school equals a building equals a school equals a facility equals a facility, you know, that sort of thing. Why not have five or six or seven schools inside of a traditional old school building? And they did it and it worked. They ran this thing by him. He says that's exactly what would happen. And in the course of a single summer, 
Those teachers could move from one school to 20 or 30 schools. And the variety that you would see, so the one first point you'll see is size, the second is variety. Look at the variety that we have in restaurants. Vegetarian, quick, fast, big, small, expensive, whatever. Look at the variety we have in churches, same thing, big, small, quick variety. <laughs> right. Expensive. Look at the variety we have in magazines. That's the kind of variety we're going to see in schools. There's going to be sports-oriented schools, and there's going to be Montessori schools, and there's going to be Waldorf schools, and there's going to be Lutheran schools, and there's going to be Catholic schools. That school that, that, that right now is one school with 2,300 kids, black and Hispanic. By the way, there's no racial segregation in that school. As I went from the kindergarten to the kindergarten, one's all black, next one's all black, next one's all brown, next one's all black, next one's all brown. Oh, language-based. <laughs> they split them by language. They certainly wouldn't split them racially. But that's what the schools look like in Los Angeles today. At least the one I saw, two I saw did. Then I went to Watts and looked at some schools. I didn't see drive-bys. It's worse than that. It's what the Russians say, Skuchna. One of the unsung heroes of the, Russia, of the uh, fall of communism was Skuchna. It was boring. <laughs> it was boring. <laughs> Revolution's better than this. It's boring. <laughs> so the variety will be incredible. Because right there in that one school, you'll have 20 or 30 different schools competing with each other for the kids. Third will be convenience. Well, gee, if you've got 25 schools right there at the local neighborhood, that means it's not far to go to an African national school. It's not far to go to a Muslim school. It's not far to go to a Southern Baptist school. It's not far to go to a Pentecostal school. It's not far to go to an interdenominational school. It's not far to go to a music-oriented school. Because they're all there where the one old same old same old used to be. So there's immense variety, I mean convenience. Cost will drop initially by half and then go further. Cost will go from 5,500 average down to around 2,500 with your bargain schools and budget schools being about 1,000 a year per kid for a better education than they're getting today. Scholarship. In order for the poorest one-third of the population to go to be able to afford even those reduced costs, they will need scholarships. Some will need 25%, some 50%, some 70%, some 80%, and some 90% or 95% sliding scale type scholarships. To provide sliding scale scholarships that average 60% for the bottom third of the population requires about 20 to 25 billion per year. Now, to size 20 or 25 billion, and, and to give you a, a confidence that it, it, we can predict that that amount will be available, consider these facts. One, we're coming off of a 250 to 300 billion dollar tax cut. I believe when Americans discover their government is no longer running the schools, we'll demand the money back. <coughs> Just as they did in 1946, when the word got out that World War II was over, Americans did not declare a pizza dividend but it had the biggest tax cut in history. And when we discover our government is no longer has 85,000 schools, we're going to demand 250 and $300 billion back. But the bottom third of the population is still going to need scholarships. But think about it. 
If all of education is now costing between 100 and 150 billion, and we're getting 200 to 200, 250 to 300 billion in tax cuts, it frees up a huge amount of money for people to give. Proven, by the way, they give already, even in today's era, today's uh, 21 billion a year to colleges. And proven fact, little kids are cuter than big kids. <laughs> right? So if we can raise 21 billion today, we can raise 25 billion tomorrow coming off of a $300 billion tax cut. It's predictable. I haven't met the person yet who says, oh, I'm sure looking forward to an underclass that's uneducated <laughs> and dangerous. <laughs> but they don't even have to look forward to that. They got that now. <laughs> One guy says, he says, as, as the schools walk further and further away from teaching character and morality, and as they become better and better at the self-esteem technique stuff, what they're doing is graduating kids who feel good about themselves while doing evil. <laughs> I heard that. I still remember where I was listening to that on a tape. And it felt to me like a blow. Ooh, I shouldn't do that. What did I just do to my microphone? <laughs> anyway, like a blow to the sternum. I mean, I was breathless with the power of that statement. You teach a kid that morality isn't important. And you teach him how to feel good about himself, no matter what. And you've got a graduate who feels good about himself while doing evil. Aesthetics. Are those teachers, once they're leasing the rooms and have a long-term lease on that room, are they going to paint only the inside and have it looking nice? Or are they going to do something with the outside? They're trying to get business. Do shopping centers look like prisons? No. That's, you want them to be attractive. I was in Baltimore visiting one of my daughters the other day. And I was driving by and I said to myself, that is the ugliest warehouse I have ever seen in my life as I'm driving along. And then I came to the end of it and I saw the swing sets. And my heart went out to the little kids. They've got to go to that school. A friend of mine is a new pilot. And she says on the pilot's maps, they show prisons and high schools. And she says from the air, she can't tell them apart. Now, she's a new pilot, right? I'm sure after a while, I'll tell you, on June the 30th, when those schools stop being operated by the government and those facilities are leased to the teachers that want to be in the schooling business in 90 days, those teachers are going to have the most fun, exciting summer of their lives. They're not going to the beach that summer. They're going to be there painting and they're going to be putting up picket fences and that place is going to look so different. In 90 days. Because they're going to want to attract business. Aesthetics. Psh. Man, they're going to look better. And safety. When you get rid of compulsory attendance, you might get 5% fewer attendees, but you're immediately going to have 95% more education just there. I only know of one country that doesn't have compulsory attendance. Singapore. Their attendance is 94%. Sort of like Korea with 93%, Taiwan with 94%, and other places that have compulsory attendance. Guess what, folks? We all want our kids to get educated. Yeah, government doesn't say you have to be in school. I do. Oops, now the responsibility is on the right person. 
So right now, kid asks his dad, why do I have to go to school? Government says you have to. Click. He's back to channel surfing. Conversation's over. Right? He didn't have any responsibility to talk to the kid and sell him on it. Click. Government says you have to. Last page. Number four. Goals, activities of the Separation Alliance. What am I trying to do with this little organization that we've started? I'm looking forward to having 15,331 chapters. What a strange number, Marshall. Well, that's about how many school districts there are in America, and I think we need a chapter at every school district in the country. Uh, what are those chapters going to do? Two things. One, they're going to find school Sakharovs. What's a school Sakharov? Well, we all remember Andrei Sakharov. He was the Nobel Prize winning physicist in the Soviet Union. And he stood up one day and said, Marxism doesn't work. And that sent shockwaves through the Soviet Union. He was banished. Eventually they made a movie out of him. Remember Jason Robards played the part. John Taylor Gatto is our first school Sakharov. The New York State Teacher of the Year for 1991. Three prior years, the New York City Teacher of the Year for three years running. When he accepted his award and had his speech before the New York Senate, said to these people, the schools aren't working. They're doing positive harm to the kids. He went on to resign and now spends his life public speaking about why we need the separation of school and state. And he is exhausting. He is consuming himself in this passion. He just got back from Auckland, Australia, Seoul, Korea, as well as going, spoken in every one, 50 states so far, in the year and a half that he's been doing this. One Gatto, one Sakharov, is a flare. A thousand Sakharovs is a bombardment. A hundred thousand Sakharovs is victory. And we need to find the educators who are successful, with or without a Nobel laureate, currently teaching or retired, a little easier if you're retired, school board, principal, teacher, education professor, who's willing to stand up and say, the system cannot work. It is not the fault of any of the particular people involved. It is the system itself. We need to abandon the concept of democratic socialism for the operation of our schools in America. And we have just found our first one. Professor Kevin Ryan, 35 years an educator, professor of education at Boston University. He's the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development's head of their subgroup called the Center for the Advancement of Character and Ethics has told me the only way that it's ever going to work is separation of school and state. Kevin, may I use your name publicly? He said, yes, we've found our first one. And we already had John. He was a freebie. <laughs> he figured this out. 
long ago and on his own. But now we got one that we've developed. One down, 99,999 to go. And I got others I'm working on. But no sense in talking about, no sense in counting your soccer offs until they're willing to go public. The second thing we need uh, is 25 million people to sign the proclamation for separation of school and state. We need to draw a line and ask people to cross that line and to say, I have proclaimed, I am a proclaimer. I have publicly said I believe in the separation of school and state. We need 25 million people to do that. That's the other job, to find the Sakharovs and the individuals to declare. And as we do that, we win. We're not the political arm. The politicians will race in and try to get ahead of the parade. Once they see where the parade is going, remember Jerry Brown on, on uh, January the 7th, uh, June the 7th, 1978, right? <coughs> you all remember where he was on Prop 13 up through, up through Tuesday, right? He was against it. And on Wednesday, he said, let me lead you to the promised land of Proposition 13-ism, right? He saw the parade and he ran up ahead. So we've got to create the parade. We don't have to be the, I don't have to be the politician. All I've got to do is help create the parade. Sam Adams, an intellectual provocateur, not a politician. Didn't lead us, didn't president, anything like that. There's, from our purpose, my role model. Now, the short term, we want to find seven soccer offs by May 1995. Secondly, we want to have good answers to the four main questions. And how you can help the poor? What about irresponsible parents? Uh, what about how is society, if, if you have diversity of schooling, how is society going to have community and a feeling of cooperation, racial um, cooperation, that sort of thing, if you have diversity? And number four, what are you going to do about my pension? The teachers have some concerns, too. <laughs> so we've got to come up with good answers to those four questions. So, and the other short-term uh, requirement is survive. Survive. You all found a little yellow piece of paper there. And if you unfold that little yellow piece of paper, there's an opportunity for you to support me. I live by what one friend calls upscale mooching. <laughs> we'll cure society. <laughs> Holding a little paper sign. You know, we'll help society for money. Why are there three reasons? The three reasons for hope coming down to the short stretch. One, John Stuart Mill said many years ago that all ideas, new ideas, good ideas, come through three phases. They are first considered absurd, then they're considered bold, and then they're considered obvious. Today we are considered absurd by most people. This concept is absurd. Once it reaches bold, I believe it will last in bold for about two years, and then it will be obvious. How long will it take us to get from absurd to bold? I don't know. But once it starts to go, it's gone. When the Hungarians said, let's open the gates and let the Germans out. When the sons of 56, and the orphans of 50, remember the Hungarian Revolution of 56? When their children in 89... <laughs> Open the gates and let the trabots that could run out. They started a hemorrhage. They didn't know what would happen exactly. 
But they started that hemorrhage, and man, it all came tumbling down. This isn't going to happen state by state, district by district. You don't end the Berlin. Well, let's make a 10-foot cut in the Berlin Wall and see how that works, and if it works okay, we'll open it another 20 feet. You don't do it gradually. It's done. And that's what's going to happen. Reasons for hope. We commissioned our first poll. We rented one question on a major nationwide poll. They wrote the question. We didn't even write the question. The question dealt with getting the government out of the financing of education and out of the compulsory attendance, the two toughest parts of the whole issue. 26% of the 1,006 people that were interviewed, 26% said they were somewhat or strongly in favor of the separation of school and state. We're already further along than we know. And as the schools get worse, there is no other peaceful solution. Last point. What can you do now? Study, evaluate, and decide. Get the literature, like the book Separating School and State by Sheldon Richmond, like the plan, A Beginning, not quite yet a plan, but A Beginning by Marshall Fritz, and make the decision. Do you think this is good for you, for your kids, for America? If you do, then I ask you to participate. With your time, form a chapter. With your talent, send ideas, send people. And with your treasure, <laughs> send financial support. My basic request to working people is for $17.76 a month on your MasterCard or Visa. And when you see that pop up, you're going to say, Hey, Mildred, got more of that out of that than I did out of that dinner with the Snurdleys, which are there for $74. Bucks. If $17.76 works with your attitude but not your budgetude, change it. One guy says, yeah, I'll do that. Just move the decimal place, one to the right. He does $177.60 a month. Another guy says, yeah, but take off the one. He does $7.76 a month. They both feel great. They both feel great. The Mississippi is made up of a lot of little rivers and creeks and branches and springs and streams. They got together and said, let's do something big. Every little bit helps. Every big bit helps, too. Now, we just put out our first fundraising letter to 25,000 people. I borrowed the money to put 25,000 pieces of mail in the mail. And I am delighted because it's the first time we've ever had a check go this direction to give Chris Rufer the first installment on repaying him. And I would like to ask everyone here to give that man a hand for... It has seemed to him many times to be single-handedly <laughs> financing the separation of school and state alliance. But uh, 
Hopefully uh, everyone here says we don't want Chris to do that single-handedly anymore. Let me close with this final item. We all recognize that one of the jobs of a church is to impart values or virtues into its members. All churches try to impart some sort of virtues into the members, among other things, but that's one of the jobs of a church. What we need to understand is that a school is a church without a steeple for the imparting of values into little people. And we don't have the palm, the doggerel, quite together yet. Maybe one of you will invent it. Church, people, steeple, little people. But when we have that little palm, it'll be simple enough that when Americans grasp that a school is like a church and that it imparts virtues into people, then it will be instantaneous, easy, no-brainer that the government shouldn't be running the schools. It is a no-brainer. Every Herman can say to every Mildred, hell, I could have thunk of that. And we will go from it being obvious that the government should run the schools to equally and viscerally and profoundly obvious that the only thing that's going to work in our society is for those schools to be fully privatized and for the government to get completely out of the schooling business. Thank you very much. This is the end of tape one. The question and answer and discussion period is on tape two.